Isaac Fitzgerald, he is Saeed Jones. It's Thursday, and you are watching AM to DM. Scam the morning before the morning scams you. Mm. Let's get to this new cycle, honey. Uh, the president is awake. He is. <laughs> and She's is up. tweeting about Twitter. Uh, here's what he had to say, or one of the things. Twitter, shadow banning prominent Republicans, not good. We will look into this discriminatory and illegal practice at once. Many complaints. Many complaints. Our own Charlie Warzel had this to say, this Vice story got blown way out of proportion, and now the president has tweeted about Twitter shadow banning, but Twitter told me yesterday the issue is really just a bug that they're fixing. Hmm. Brian Feldman, an editor at New York Magazine joins us now to help us figure out what's going on. Uh, Brian, good morning. Good morning. All right, thanks for joining us. Now, remind us again, what exactly is shadow banning and why is the president tweeting about it today? Okay, so a shadow ban in traditional terms is basically that you ban a user not by deleting their account entirely, but by just making everything they post visible only to themselves so that they think they're still engaging with the site but nobody else can see them or reward them with interaction in any way. And eventually the idea is users just get tired of that and leave. Hmm. Okay, and they just get tired of it and leave. Tell us about the Vice story and basically how did this come across the president's, uh, how did it come to the president's attention? Yeah, I don't peg him as a Vice reader. Mm, yeah. Yeah, um, so the Vice story uh, had to deal with the way Twitter auto-populates its search field. So if you start typing Donald, uh, it'll usually throw up a link to Donald Trump's Twitter feed and saying, it seems like you're looking for this. Um, what Vice found was that uh, a number of what they called prominent Republicans uh, were not being shown in the auto-populate field. So uh, you could see their tweets still, you could find their profiles, they just weren't showing up in this one specific part of the site. Uh, and Vice found that Republicans were affected more than their Democratic counterparts. Um, and uh, as it happens, uh, Republicans like to think that tech platforms are against them and want to censor them. And so it became a talking point for the president to seize upon. Okay, a point for him to seize upon. What is Twitter saying about all of this? Uh, Twitter is saying that uh, the reason those accounts weren't showing up was based on a myriad number of signals that they use to determine uh, whether or not an account is going to be a good experience to show a user. Um, so uh, Gizmodo over the weekend found that alt-right people like Mike Cernovich uh, were not showing up uh, in the same way that people like Ronna McDaniel weren't, but uh, it seems that whatever complex system they use to evaluate these things uh, snagged Republicans in it. Okay, now Brian, your piece, you kind of took a little bit of umbrage with the way uh, Vice reported it out, and I will say our own Charlie said that that piece really was getting blown out of it, uh, out of proportion. Charlie I think, so. Yeah, I think it got picked up by uh, Fox News. So, so why, what do you think's sh shady about it? What'd they get wrong? I think the problem is framing it as a partisan issue and not an experience issue. So, um, it's, it's more that Republicans are not being hidden uh, at all, but 
they're certainly not being hidden in this one specific instance because of their beliefs or their political values, as much as it's the fact that Republicans, more often than not, are willing to interact with fringe elements to entertain them and signal boost them. And Twitter drew those connections. Interesting. Um, the idea that it's because someone was like, oh, this person is a Republican uh, doesn't really track. It's more of an experience thing. It doesn't really track. I'm also curious, you know, I know Jack is headed to Capitol Hill um, with other tech leaders uh, this fall. I wanted to ask you, it seems like Facebook and uh, Twitter now as well keep finding themselves in this dynamic where uh, conservative people, and certainly now the president, kind of keep pushing and keep asking for more. Is is, is that a fair uh, kind of read on their back and forth? Uh, Yeah, I think tech companies are scared of being regulated by a Republican-controlled Congress. And so when they are uh, confronted with the idea that they're being unfair, they want to appease. Um, And I think uh, in a lot of ways, they're unprepared for sort of these bad faith arguments that people are making about shadow banning or censorship or whatever. Underprepared. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your piece and thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Thanks. All right, friends. Well, uh, if you've been looking at the timeline, you've probably noticed many people say this, the summer of the scam continues. Mm. Uh, Earlier this morning, the Los Angeles Times published one hell of a story, literary ambitious, ambition, the fabulous parties, a hidden past, who is Anna March? Who is Anna March? And this story strikes close to home for both me and Saeed, uh, to be honest, right? Because we have actually both had interactions with Anna March, the woman this story is about. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I've tweeted a, a thread with you know screenshots of emails because they're all there. Um, but yeah, in 2016, um, early 2016, it feels like a lifetime ago, I got an email from a woman named Anna March inviting me to Los Angeles. I was already going to be there for a literary conference. Uh, she put together an organization called the Lulu Fund that was giving out awards to people who were focusing kind of as literary citizens, you know, combining literary aspirations, supporting emerging writers, people of color, whatever. I was like, sure, I'm already going to be there. Mm-hmm. I showed up. We went together. Went together. Mm-hmm. I him and haw the whole time. I went there. It was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, gave a little speech. Got the award. And there was like a one thousand dollar check that was coming, you know, with each one. And it was like you'll get it in the mail. And I was well, like, cool, whatever. You were planning to donate. I wanted to donate because you know, doing work with emer- emerging writers, it doesn't feel like I need to. Whatever. Um, and you can see, just you know, uh, a few weeks later, my assistant followed up, um, and I was included on the thread. And it was just like it just seemed very confusing. A lot of excuses. And you know, one thing led to another. It was not a big priority for me. I just sold my book to sign. And Schuster, I was like, eh, whatever. And I just frankly forgot about Anna March until the story came out. So that was 2016, and this morning this story dropped. Caroline Kellogg, books editor of the Los Angeles Times and co-author of this piece, along with writer Melissa Chadburn, joins us now. Good morning, Carolyn. How you doing? Good morning, Isaac. Good morning, Saeed. Hi. It's so good to talk to you. Loving the glasses. Let's start here, <laughs> Carolyn. Who is Anna March? Uh, she's not Anna March. That's an invented name. I mean, that's the name she's been going by since we've known her in the literary community. But she was born Nancy Lott and has used other names throughout her past. Other names throughout her past. I mean, I, can you just give an example for people who have not read the story yet? Um, an example of um, how she kind of has gotten away with and kind of moved through different literary communities over the last few years. Sure. Well, like like you said, she's approached a lot of people sort of offline 
and then created these online communities that are supportive often of gender or people that feel marginalized within literature, say. She threw this big party in Los Angeles and everybody went. Like everybody in books went. She had been working her social networks really, really well. And everybody just wanted to see who she was and what was going on. She mostly has published some stories in Salon. She says she has had book deals. Um, which we weren't able to confirm. Um, and uh, she, in her past, has been things other than a literary person. All right, and what, what, has, what has she been in her past? What were some of those other identities? Uh, she started out working on a political campaign in Washington, D.C. Uh, then she gave herself a new name and moved to San Diego and got involved in a nonprofit writing center there where she was charming and everybody loved her and she got things going and then things fell apart. Then she moved back to the DC area, used a different name and became a fundraiser for public radio stations. Fundraiser for public radio stations. Well, okay, so, you know, listen, a thousand dollar check, you know, nice bit of money, but that's not in the big scheme of things, like a huge, huge amount of money. What were some of the bigger kind of financial uh, numbers, I guess, that have kind of come up in your reporting from Anna? The biggest number, and, and I have to credit Melissa Chadburn yes. for doing dogged reporting on this story. I did a lot of the background research and being at the LA Times, like, you know, our, our, uh, periods and commas, but Melissa did so much reporting. And what we found was that uh, there was a judgment against uh, Nancy Cruz, which was her name then, for $380,000 for money that was owed to public radio stations after an online auction. Wow. wow. I, mean, that, I mean, that is a big That's a lot number. of money. And from there, it, like we were talking about, she then moves into these literary communities. Can you talk a little bit as to, uh, Said mentioned it briefly before, what, what was the Lulu Fund? Um, it, was, uh, it was going to be a fund that would support diversity in publishing in a number of ways and was going to, I think, advocate for like childcare at AWP and like nursing rooms, stuff like that. Does that sound right, Said? Yeah, yeah. It, was, it sounded, you yeah. know, like a, why wouldn't you support something like this? A lot of great causes that I think people naturally support. And you know, I noticed in, in Melissa's reporting, she talked often about the feminist credentials being something that would often persuade people. Mm -hmm. And it was with uh, Ashley Ford, who I think um, was sort of much better known in the literary community than Anna March and sort of gave her entree, it seems like. And then uh, between... Uh, it just sort of stopped. Anna March decided to stop the Lulu Fund. And Ashley Ford told us that she was surprised that that happened. Mm. Yeah, so, so you actually talked to Ashley Ford. Can you speak a little bit more about what she had to say? And did you talk with anyone else who had kind of gotten one pulled over on them or worked with Anna in the past? Well, we talked to a lot of people who worked with Anna in the past, and some went on the record and some did not. Yeah. Um, uh, Melissa talked to Ashley, and I don't want to put words in her mouth other than what's in the piece. What's in the piece, yeah. I guess, listen, you, I'm impressed, you know, LA Times, New York Times, you know, people are already up and reading and discussing. Based on my own tweets, people are already sharing their own stories um, in my mentions. So I wanted to ask, have you heard from Anna March herself, either during the course of reporting or since it's been published? And have you heard, had other significant um, reactions to the story now that it's out? Well, this might sound strange, but when we approached Anna March, she did not want to speak on the record, but she she 
she listened to our questions apparently because she went to a website that she founded, RoarFeminist.org, I think, um, and posted an open letter there. And I encourage people who want to learn about Anna March from her point of view to go ahead and read that story because that's her version of the events um, as they transpired. But we've heard from people I've seen on Twitter, people uh, talking about their engagements with her privately on Facebook, um, about having contracts with her, uh, whether or not they were paid, somebody posting a long tweet stream. There's been, uh, I'm really curious to hear about these other stories. To hear about those other stories. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for the story and thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All right, I mean, this is, it's pretty interesting. Pretty I also want to just say, shout out to her glasses. Those were, those were symbolic glasses. Pretty spiffy glasses. Yeah. Okay, so Twitter, we want to hear from you. Uh, tell us a story about when someone got one over on you, uh, took advantage of your good intentions. Uh, it happens to all of us, one way or another at some point. Let us know using the hashtag am to dm Yeah, and it's okay to kind of have a serious conversation about this because so many people were affected uh, by this. But now let's talk about DNA testing. Mm. Robin Simmons at WSVN7 News, you tweeted, did you agree to participate in scientific research when you submitted saliva for a home DNA test? Big Pharma may be using it now. That's right. 23andMe has partnered with pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline, which will be using DNA test results from 5 million customers to design new drugs. Here to talk about this development is Dan Vergano. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, guys. How are you doing? We're doing all right. So what do each of these companies, 23andMe um, and this pharmaceutical company, get out of this deal? Uh, well, uh, 23andMe gets uh, $300 million bucks, uh, and they get um, sort of the imprintur of a big pharma company working with them uh, full-time. This is uh, a push that they've been making uh, in medicine for a long time called precision medicine, which is the idea that uh, drugs are going to be tailored to your genes. And the uh, idea is uh, we got to find the genes first. So you need a big pool of people who have submitted to genetic testing, and that's what 23andMe has got. Uh, they say 5 million people in the news release, 23andMe says 3 million people uh, on their website. That's a lot of people, and it turns out about 80% of them, uh, millions of people, uh, have agreed to be part of medical um, research uh, when they signed up to spit into this cup and get their genes tested. Okay, and that is, that's an important part of this story, right? That it's an opt-in option. But again, and, and I want to use the, the language because it's important here, it was participate in scientific research. But does that really equal help a giant for-profit pharmaceutical company? Uh, well, it's too late, folks. Uh, uh, 23andMe has already published 108 uh, papers with uh, scientists, uh, including Glaxo. Uh, it was one of them. They had a paper in October for uh, genes for uh, tonsillectomies and dandruff. Um, it's already going on. This is just formalizing this. Uh, that's how it works. Uh, we uh, live in a capitalist system where we uh, entrust companies to make medical progress for us. So uh, in a genetics era, a genomics era, that's how it works. Uh, they get some of your data. Uh, it's supposed to be de-identified when they're uh, just looking for associations between diseases and genes. Um, and that's how they find new stuff. And then we all get great medicines and uh, life gets better that way. It's At least that's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's supposed to work and part of uh, medicine meeting capitalism. Um, I guess, uh, should we ask uh, about Ancestry, uh, another pretty popular uh, genealogy site? Do we know if they have similar plans? Uh, they don't say, they, you know, these companies right away. But you would suspect something like this is going on. They're not as medically directed 
as 23andMe. Uh, 23andMe is uniquely positioned to do this sort of thing because they look for uh, gene markers associated with diseases already. So they've been doing that for hundreds of genes associated with um, various ailments. And, you know, they're set up with uh, medical researchers, genetics researchers to do it. Ancestry really is more, uh, and the other ones are more really about your heredity. They're looking at more things like families of immune genes that correspond to geographical locations, the sort of more traditional uh, genetic ancestry work. All right. Now, now, Dan, I, I do, I do kind of want to talk about um, what, what you just touched on there a little bit. Because listen, I'm not a big fan of big pharma. And I think it's very easy with this story, especially to be like, oh my gosh, they're selling your DNA. Um, and they are. But what are some of the medical benefits that might come out of this? Right. The, the immediate one is this Parkinson's drug that they're, they're talking up in the deal. Um, in order to test the drug, you need to find people who have the gene that predisposes them to Parkinson's. How do you find those genes? So there might be all these people out there who unknowingly are predisposed to, to Parkinson's. Here's a pool of them that you can recruit from. Uh, would you like to be tested on this drug that might prevent, you know, uh, might help uh, alleviate the risk of developing Parkinson's, which is a horrible disease? And similarly, there's all these pools of people with other genetic ailments, you know, predisposition to uh, uh, dementia, to Alzheimer's, to diabetes, you name it. Uh, and they're in specific subpopulations with these genes. And the problem is pulling those subpopulations out of the wider population. Here you've got a big pool of them, millions of people that you can um, ask, would you like to participate in testing this drug that might help a lot of other people in your, in your boat? Um, if you try to just test it on everybody, you didn't know that they had these genetic markers, you're just doing it by chance, you won't have a powerful enough study to find any effect. And you've just wasted a lot of money and a lot of people's time. Hmm. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for kind of giving us both sides of, of that story. We really appreciate you coming on the show. You bet. Yeah, a gentler, friendlier Westworld plot. <laughs> More accessible. Anyway, less, less cowboys, unfortunately. Oh, well, Way less even. cowboys. Don't go down that road. Uh, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Would you opt in or opt out and why? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. I just, I, as I have no DNA, have no opinion. Ah, uh, yes, because you're a replicant. I mm. forgot. I forgot about the replicant theme. I'll say this. Personally, I think it's really easy for me to get scared. You know me. I can be tinfoil hatty about a lot of this stuff. But there's also something that's really great about a lot of people coming together, uh, opting in. And I think that's the really important thing. I think people really need to know what they are opting into. Right. But I might opt in if it helps Parkinson's, like that's a, that affects so many people. So I can see the argument both ways. Listen, stick around. We're going live from the district with Congressman Joe Kennedy of Massachusetts. In just a moment, we got a great show for you. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with Democratic Congressman Joe Kennedy of Massachusetts. Good morning, Congressman. Good morning, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Sounds like things are busy, moving and shaking there. Um, listen, I want to start with this. Some <laughs> they are. Of, they are. Things are happening. Uh, speaking of which, some of your Republican colleagues introduced articles of impeachment against Rod Rosenstein yesterday. What do you make of all that? Uh, yeah, they did. Um, and look, uh, first, um, stunned, saddened, and um, so not surprised. Look, this has been something that um, the far right within uh, the Republican caucus has been talking about and wanting to do now for months. 
and it is a stunning uh, statement, I think, after what we saw last week from uh, President Trump in Helsinki, the uh, discussions with Vladimir Putin, the idea that we still, as a country, don't know what was said in that room, the indictments that we've seen from uh, Russian intelligence officials, the indictment of uh, Maria Butina, all of this. And then the response from Republicans is to impeach the guy overseeing the investigation? You've got to be kidding me. That's what they did, um, and so I, uh, I hope Republican colleagues are going to stand up, demand a vote on this today, and deliver a strong bipartisan message back, saying we're going to stand by this inve investigation, we're going to stand up for a Department of Justice, we're going to stand up for rule of law in this country. Uh, that's what I hope will happen. That's what you we'll hope see if they actually do it. Okay. Well, speaking of Helsinki, you tweeted this: subpoenaing the president's interpreter is an undeniably is undeniably unprecedented. Our military scrambling to figure out what agreement our president made with an adversary is equally unprecedented. Time for GOP to match its words of concern with actions. Uh, Congressman, uh, what kind of agreements are you worried President Trump made with Vladimir Putin? So the bottom line on this, guys, is we have no idea what type of agreements the President Trump made with Vladimir Putin. And that's what I want to find out. It's what Congress should know. It's what the American people should know. And it's the very least of what we should all expect should happen as a result of a summit between two of the most powerful leaders in the world is that the American public's gonna know what was said and what was agreed to. We are still, the, the, the way we are finding out this information is largely from Russian sources as they are told, uh, or as those, those details leak out to a Russian public. This is insane. Look, the bottom line on this is whether the president ended up describing Crimea, which is alleged to have been reported that he was in discussions about a referendum there to potentially legitimize the takeover of Crimea by, by Russia, whether it was discussions about uh, apparently the uh, agreement to send a former U.S. ambassador, an Ambassador McFall, over to Russia for interrogation in exchange for the 12 individuals that Mr. Mueller indicted, uh, which is unprecedented and breaks all sorts of rules, norms, and that the very heart of um, the, the ground on which our diplomats function, um, whether it was uh, additional concerns about the Arctic, about um, sanctions, we have no idea. And all that I'm trying to say is we want to know. And that doesn't mean, obviously, uh, heads of state need to be able to have confidential uh, conversations with other leaders. That's fine. I get that. But provide a readout. Provide a summary. Brief certain key leaders in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Try to at least read in your military. These are published press reports where our military and diplomats don't know what was said in the room. All right, so and that's and not a way to run. So, Congress, the government, you want you want a bit of transparency. Let me ask you just flat out: Do you believe that Putin has some kind of dirt on President Trump? I don't know. Um, I can say that his actions in that summit certainly do not help quell those questions. And. Look, I, you know, getting away from the partisanship on this, um, this, was not a, this was not a good summit for the country. It was not a good summit for, for our government. It was not a good summit for the American people. And what I, wanna, what I want is some level of transparency as to what happened then. And hopefully, look, I, I hope that the president uh, was as strong on this as his supporters like to say he is. I hope that they have no, no information that could compromise President Trump. I, I really do. The only thing I can say is, between his actions last week and a week later, the decision to try to impeach the man overseeing this investigation is only going to lead to more questions rather than answers. Okay, we do have to press you a little harder though, Congressman. Do you believe the P-tape uh, mentioned in the Russian dossier uh, is real? 
I have no uh, no knowledge as to whether that that is real or not. It obviously came up in this dossier. The individual that um, that put together that dossier has provided credible information to U.S. intelligence sources in the past, but I can't speculate as to whether its inclusion there is real or not. Um, I don't think, and I think we should be really clear on this, whether that is real or not, and those allegations in there are, are real or not, does not take away from the very serious questions that this administration should be asking Vladimir Putin about meddling in our election, about pushing back on that interference, about trying to make sure that this leadership doesn't solely come from Congress, but that the president himself, as Mr. Pompeo said yesterday, his words dictate American policy, that he is pushing back on Vladimir Putin, not inviting him to a summit in Washington weeks before an election. All right, Congressman, if... This, if, is, if, this is bananas. If the president chooses not to do that and continues to kind of go the route that he has, uh, let's say the Democrats win back the House in November. Do you believe they should move to impeach? I think we got a long way to go between now and then. Uh, look, vote, guys, the... The first trial with uh, Mr. Manafort is, due to, is scheduled to start next week. There's another trial that is scheduled to start in September. Uh, Mr. Mueller did not, after that latest indictment, did not come in and say, okay, I'm all done, show's over. He is still, according to published reports, um, he has asked for over 100 blank subpoenas. That investigation is still ongoing. I've got serious concerns with the, uh, where that might head, um, given that we're not done yet. I think that investigation needs to play out. The public needs to be informed as to to the best information that we've got about what happened, who was responsible for it, um, and what they did. And after that, we can cross, uh, cross those next bridges when we come to it. All right, well, let's keep talking about bridges, though. Yesterday, the president tweeted, China is targeting our farmers, who they know I love and respect, as a way of getting me to continue allowing them to take advantage of the U.S. They are being vicious in what will be their failed attempt. We were being nice until now. China made $517 billion on the U.S. last year. Uh, Congressman, you serve on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. What do you make of this and the administration's $12 billion farm aid package? Look, I think the president has realized that his uh, tariffs at this point were uh, ill-conceived and he's trying to come up with political cover for uh, supporting an industry that is critical to our nation, critical to, um, to key states, and particularly um, some of these, these races that are up uh, in November in the House and in the Senate, and is using this as cover to basically insulate himself politically, which... Um, I think is, again, not surprising, but also ultimately gets back to this idea that success in this president and this administration's mind is when one element of our society succeeds and it has to come at the expense of somebody else. This is not a robust thought through plan about how we as a country can come together to take on China that is engaging in unfair trade practices. You want to do that? You engage China. You engage Mexico. You engage Europe. The United States and Europe, number one and number two largest economies in the world. You engage... <laughs> our allies, and then you take on China. What has President Trump done? Angered Canada, angered Mexico, angered almost every ally we have in Europe, and is now on a one-off fight with China, which, by the way, as he tries to talk tough on China, remember a couple of weeks ago, he was the one that was trying to give a sweetheart deal to a Russian telecom company that was accused by our own intelligence community of spying on, uh, inserting uh, spyware into, into telecommunications uh, networks. So it was the U.S. Senate and the House that had to push back on that. That did in a massive rebuke to the president coming out of the U.S. Senate. So this is not something that, despite the president's rhetoric about him being so tough on China, he's tough on the one hand, gives a giveaway on the other. Uh, 
and I think the, the overall strategy that he has in confrontation to, to try to actually change these trade practices is short-sighted and isn't going to work. Isn't going to work. Well, uh, Congressman, we also wanted to ask because, you know, the deadline to reunite 1,600 eligible separated families is today. We have to talk about it. Uh, the process has reportedly been incredibly chaotic for these families. You visited the U.S.-Mexico border in June uh, and toured centers here in Harlem. Uh, what did you see? Look, this is an American tragedy. Um, there's no other way to put it. Uh, I went down to the border with a, a good friend of mine, Beta O'Rourke, who organized a rally um, in uh, Tornillo, one of these facilities that is run by Department of Health and Human Services, so one of the first tent cities. Um, over a thousand other people showed up there in this, this um, essentially a parking lot. We were not allowed inside. Beto and I were not allowed inside to see anything. Um, I did go back and uh, was able to tour one of these facilities in, in New York City. Um, saw hundreds of kids. Um, and look, let's be, be clear that from everything that I could see from inside that facility, the, the workers there were doing everything they could to care for hundreds of kids that come from different countries and um, some as young as about a year old. And uh, I think they are doing the best they can. That's at least from what I could see that, that that's true. The fact is they never should have to be doing this in the first place. Somebody within the White House, whether it was the president or one of her senior advisors, thought that this was a good idea. And they thought that stripping kids from their parents' arms was going to be such a punitive punishment that would deter somebody from coming to America that is fleeing a type of violence and destruction and devastation that brought most of our families here in the first place. And they did that without any idea as to how they might try to reunify those families uh, once this process ever came to a close or when they realized that some of those folks might actually have a legitimate claim for asylum. Now, let's be clear about that. There are now reports that there's about four, over 450 individuals who par whose parents, young kids, whose parents have been deported, who our government needs to track down because they weren't, <laughs> we, we separated their kids and deported their parents without telling them of that deportation, <laughs> without telling their kids that they were gonna be separated. This is unconscionable. And the fact that our government would go through this without actually clearly thinking through the policy, I think points directly at the, the crassness um, uh, of this debate in the first place and the real intention behind it. And I'm glad to see that there's been a, a public outcry to push back on it, um, but nothing that the president's come up with, nothing that this administration's come up with so far is gonna solve that problem. Uh, and a billion, or $25 billion border wall isn't gonna solve that problem either. All right, Congressman, it sounds like you do have a lot of ideas about how things should be done, uh, but you've said you don't wanna be in house leadership because you have young kids. Are you also closing the door on other opportunities for higher office? <laughs> Look, I got no plans on that. I. Um, I, uh, I got two kids at the moment that are actually um, sick. So I, I ran home last night, got back down here early this morning. Um, more than anything, use either coffee or a nap, um, probably a bit of both. And then after that, we'll take it from there. But um, look, I got a very full plate at the moment. As other opportunities come up, wherever they are, um, happy to evaluate them then. But it is not, <laughs> uh, that is not my priority at the moment, anywhere. Congressman, something that has been on my mind a lot lately is the fact that it seems like there are a tale of uh, two Democratic parties right now. We have uh, an insurgent candidate like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and then, of course, we have the establishment, uh, which has seen Pelosi in power for 14 years and, and, frankly, Kennedy's in office my entire lifetime and then some. Uh, where do you see yourself in this divide? Because it does seem like an increasingly important conversation. So, look, any party that aspires to be a big tent party is going to have viewpoints along a political spectrum. I think what gets lost in this is that there are far more areas that 
unite those, uh, that spectrum as you articulated, us as Democrats, then actually divide us. You talk about health care. Yes, it was great to see uh, a number of uh, candidates running on a health care platform across this country. My uncle, Senator Ted Kennedy, health care was a cause of his life in the U.S. Senate for nearly 50 years. This has been an, an issue that has been one of my, my leading issues since I came to office, has been a leading issue for many Democrats here, and is the number one leading issue for uh, challengers across the country. This isn't an area of division amongst Democrats. This is an area of unification amongst us. You might have some different challenges about how you work out the minute details here, which, look, health care is complicated. But when we start trying to split hairs about saying, hey, are you going to finance this health care overhaul this way or that way? Way versus a Republican vision of this, which is taking away health care from 30 million people, I, I think those divisions largely melt away. And so I think what you are seeing across the country is a, a dynamic where a lot of younger leaders are stepping forward. Um, the, the caliber of folks that have uh, thrown themselves out there to run for office. We've got veterans, you've got CIA agents, you've got Peace Corps volunteers, you've got uh, folks from Teach for America, you've got service-motivated leaders that are stepping forward across this country that have these incredible stories to tell and their motivations for running for office in the first place. That's, I think, what's going to drive not only this election, but the lifeblood of a Democratic Party when we do come back in January with the majority and can also talk about issues, and, and this is something that doesn't get touched on, I think, quite enough, with that overhaul and with that generational change, you're going to see issues that come to the fore that haven't yet. Issues like student loans, issues like affordable childcare, issues like trying to make sure that uh, we start to wrestle with um, some of these economic challenges with two households where you have, have to have two income earners where, with all due respect to many of uh, my colleagues here, when they were my age, that was not their reality. That was not their lived reality. That was not the economic reality. It is so today. And so regardless as to whether some of these folks end up being Democrats or Republicans, I think you're going to see an update of some of the challenges that, that a younger generation confronts on their daily basis uh, and in their realities versus some of the ones that have been uh, kind of the long-standing policy debates here. All right. A very optimistic view of the future. Congressman, we're going to have to leave you there. Thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, of course, testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee yesterday, as you heard from uh, Representative Kennedy. He was there to talk about U.S. foreign policy and how that stated policy lines up or doesn't with what President Trump says or tweets. BuzzFeed News reporter Emily Tamkin, who covers the State Department, tweeted about one especially spicy exchange between Pompeo and Senator Menendez. Now they're accusing one another of making political soliloquies. You want to talk about politics? If Obama did what Trump did in Helsinki, I'd be peeling you off the Capitol ceiling. Please. 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 Ooh, drama. All right. Emily Tamkin joins us now. Emily, good morning. It was drama. Good morning, guys. I know. I saw you wanted to work spicy into your headline, so shout out to your editor for pulling you back, girl. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so this is my first question. Was Pompeo uh, specifically asked to meet this committee because of Helsinki, or was this like a standing invitation that just got way more interesting? Both. Um Senators and especially Senate Democrats had been pushing for a full committee hearing with Pompeo, particularly on Russia and North Korea. Um, the Helsinki summit was certainly the the immediate impetus uh, for the for the hearing. But right. it had been I mean it had been in eighteen months, right? And they hadn't had a full committee hearing on these issues. All right. What were the most significant takeaways from the hearing? So I think the the most significant thing of substance that we learned is that North Korea is still producing nuclear nuclear fuel, although. 
um, Pompeo would not say whether or not they were still moving ahead with their nuclear program more generally. But to me, the leitmotif, if you will, of the hearing was that there's this gap between the Trump administration's policy, particularly toward Russia, and what Trump says. Um, Pompeo was sort of trying to exist that there, there was no gap there, doesn't exist, never has. Um, and senators of, of both parties were reminding him that, no, you know, your stated policy sounds very different from what the president says. Hmm. Hmm. All right. No, let's go to this tweet from CNN's Jeff Zelaney. Amid criticism, White House backtracks on Putin's visit. National Security Advisor John Bolton now says, quote, the president believes that the next bilateral meeting with President Putin should take place after the Russia witch hunt is over. So we've agreed that it will be after the first of the year. After the first of the year. So, Emily, uh, does this new development connect with what you saw unfold yesterday during Pompeo's hearing? It's connected in this way. It's connected in that I think that the Russian side is well aware that although the summit went basically as well as it could have for them without getting a major policy reversal, they're now going to see backlash from Congress, which is going to make it more difficult to uh, bring U the U.S. and Russia closer. So sort of from the Russian perspective, why would they have a second summit, right? They, they sort of staged this coup of, a, of, um, of an international diplomatic feat. Why, why would they now have another one that would upset U.S. policymakers even more? So Putin never actually accepted the summit and then sort of let, you know, let the invitation hang in the air. And now the U.S. is saying, well, never mind, it's going to be next year anyway. Um, but it, it's connected in that way, right? And that, that the senators still don't know what was discussed between Putin and Trump. It's not entirely clear to me after listening to Pompeo for three hours that he knows exactly what was discussed between the two. Um, and so I think at this time, there couldn't be another summit in the fall without backlash from U.S. policymakers mm -hmm. toward and, Russia. And I do want just to, so that that's striking to me. You, you, you listen to the, our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, testify uh, before the Senate for three hours. And in your opinion, as a State Department reporter, you don't feel like it's very clear he understands uh, what happened in Russia uh, in Helsinki either. I, you know, I, I have no reason not to believe him when he says that he and Trump discussed what was discussed. But let's take, for example, the Crimea declaration that came out of the State Department yesterday, which basically reiterates U.S. policy on Crimea, saying Crimea is Ukraine, Russia needs to drop this purported annexation. Um, and, and Pompeo sort of held it up as like, look how tough we are on, you know, against Russia in support of Ukraine. Well, why would we need this Crimea declaration if we, if we knew that Trump didn't say, yeah, maybe I'll consider referendums for Russia and Ukraine, right? Yeah. So... Uh, so I, it's not that I, I don't think that he's had conversations with the president about it. It's that I don't know that he himself, that, that, that Trump was fully honest with him about what was said, that he went into detail about what was said. Or, you know, fair, the policy hasn't changed as a result of that meeting, but that meeting still happened. And the U.S. president may have told the, his Russian counterpart something that's very different from that Crimea declaration. We, we don't know. Wow, this is fascinating. Well, uh, finally, we wanted to ask you about CNN reporter Caitlin Collins. BuzzFeed News tweeted, a CNN reporter, Collins, was banned from a Trump press conference after she asked the president questions about his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Can't imagine why she asked questions about that. Uh, the White House says Collins' questions were, quote, inappropriate, Emily. Uh, what exactly did she ask? Okay, this is what she asked. She asked, did Michael Cohen betray you? Are you, I'm paraphrasing the second one, are you concerned about what he might tell prosecutors? And then when Trump didn't answer those questions, she said, um, I think it was, why, why didn't Putin 
accept your invitation to come this fall. Uh -huh. So these are questions that were on the arguably the two biggest stories of yesterday's news cycle, right? The idea that they were somehow inappropriate strikes me as a little bit odd, given that reporters asking questions uh, at a full spray is pretty standard procedure for reporters. Um, and I, I just like to, to say that the reason that, that people that, that, you know, the press were sort of came out in support of, of Collins is that it's not that it's so important that this one individual is in the Rose Garden, right? But it's the idea that, that if you are pushed back on in the course of just doing your job, right, that asking questions is somehow inappropriate for a reporter or that, that you'll, you'll lose your ability to report and bring information to the public, it adds to this environment in which it's not, it's not that reporters are under attack, it's that the information that they are trying to bring the public is under attack, making it still more disorienting for people who, who aren't Collins, right, who aren't in the White House, who are trying to use her information to follow reports like this one. Okay, and that's such an important detail for us all to remember. Emily, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. All right, friends, up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. We made it. Time to have some laughter. <laughs> Woo, what some a joy. What a morning. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Woo. I did like Joe, Joe Kennedy there at the end, got very kumbaya. He got very much, and then all the young people from the Republicans and the Democrats will hold hands and bitch about student loans, which, yeah. Huh? yeah. Not mad at it. Yeah, not mad at it. Yeah. You ready to get in Let's some fire it. tweets? Let's, Let's do it. Dylan Matthews, you tweeted, Brexit is so weird to follow from afar. It's like watching a guy slowly demolishing his own house with a sledgehammer because he lost a Twitter poll. <laughs> Oof. 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 Uh, just, just, just a little dark humor woo. with your political commentary. Woo. Yeah, there's an alternative timeline where everyone in the U.S. right now, we're just looking over looking over the water over them like, ooh, it's crazy over there. <laughs> I don't know what y'all doing. Y'all look crazy. Yeah. We're like, we're all crazy together. Uh, got our own things it's going fine. on. <laughs> we're we're kumbaya, kumbaya over our, I can't even say it, over our craziness. That's where we are. Anyway, shout out to the U.K. Mr. Lawson? Is this like Tina Lawson's husband? Anyway. <laughs> Threesomes are cool, oh, uh, but imagine two people are paying your bills at the same time. Ooh. I won't lie. That's some eroticism right there. Oh, it's Khalifa, okay. I would yeah. sign up for that. Uh, that is I a, would sign up for that. That's my kink. <laughs> Good credit. That's my fetish, and that, baby. And that way it doesn't hurt either of them financially as much. You know, they're binding together. All right, here we go. Claire, you tweeted, I just asked this guy, hey, why aren't ko koalas considered bears? And he hits me with, they're marsupials. Shut up, nerd. The answer to the joke is, they don't have the qualifications. And that's the truth. Oh, I'm, I might have missed the beginning of that, but yes. Smart. Oh, I didn't see that. Yo, I yeah. hate honors college boys. Yes. Oh, Chill everyone. out, smart boys. Claire, Enjoy everyone hates them. the puns. Yeah. Enjoy the puns. Yeah. Qualifications. Let people have it. <laughs> All right, this tweet comes from T. You can unfollow me, but you can never get back those brain cells you lost from reading my tweets, bitch. <laughs> uh-huh. Hope you like Buffy season six, cause I ain't gonna stop tweeting about it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but the tweets are very aggressive today. You ready yeah, to do this true. tweet? Let's it's do it, let's do it. Tweet of the day from Barky Boogs. First woman that gave birth to twins was probably like, what? <laughs> sorry, Wait, a lot of can you imagine that? I've only seen one. <laughs> 
Oh, I was I, like, oh no. It must have been I wild. I thought we were finished. Why are you going back in? Imagine you know? the person that had triplets for the first time. Pissed off. <laughs> Pissed off. Anyway, well, pour yourself a cup of moon juice. Oh yeah, they found water. Mm. We got options now, friends. Um, Isaac is going to be talking about that Gwyneth Paltrow profile that took over the timeline. Absolutely going to be talking to Taffy. We're very Oop. excited. Gwyneth Paltrow. Oop. <laughs> nice job. Anyway. Nice job. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Ollie Franklin Wallace tweeted, the news story on Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop is the rose quartz infused psychic detox your soul needs right now. I'm here with New York Times Magazine writer, Taffy Brodesser Ackner, who recently spoke with one of the internet's favorite people to hate, <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. Good morning, Taffy, how are you? Good morning, Isaac, it's really nice to be here. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Congrats on the profile. Thank you. Let's start with the hate. Why yeah. do you think the internet really has it out for Gwyneth Paltrow? You know, I think that when anybody hates anyone this much, it's never exactly about the person, although people can give you real lists of why that's not true. So mm -hmm. I don't like to uh, pretend that people don't know what, they talk, what they're talking about. But I think that, like, my experience with her is that I went in liking her. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, I try not to go after and write long stories about people I don't like. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I was so resentful of how pretty she was and how successful she was and how things had come easily to her. I remember this one minute, I think it was over dinner, mm -hmm. over that dinner, where she said that she has to, you know, that she does her, her Tracy Anderson stuff all the time. And I sat there and my first thought was, well, if I could get out to a Tracy Anderson studio, I would look like that too. And she, and I said that to her uh -huh. and she said, no, I do the videos. And like, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know guys. That, I don't know, we didn't run that by the, I don't know. Uh -huh. But I mean, I also can't imagine her showing up. At the, I, it, it, I thought about it a lot. Uh -huh. um, but I, I, noticed how enraged I became mm. about the fact that like she was depriving me of this excuse that I have to not do the things that I want to do. She was, which she was, include looking a little bit more like that. Yeah, looking, yeah, I mean, me too, me too to be All honest, a hundred percent. But I get, I get, I get how that could be a little bit like, cause it, she, her answer to everything, and this is in the piece kind of is like, you just gotta be working harder. Right. Now let's talk about that dinner though, because you did, you got to spend time with Gwyneth Paltrow, multiple times, multiple locations, yeah. but in her house, what is that like? But also I wanna just point that, I think that like, they gave me so much access, and I think that a lot of it was like, if you could know her, you would understand that people shouldn't feel this way about her. And that is a double-edged sword, when the more I knew her, the more I knew I wasn't anything like her. Mm. But also it's true that she's a human being and she's funny sometimes and, and smart and running a business and thinking about things. She never said no comment to me once. Wow. There was no topic that was off limits. She wow. was, she was, that doesn't often happen. She was an open book, and I will say that in the piece, um, she comes across very, very human. You do an incredible job, and I guess that shouldn't be such a surprise, because <laughs> she is a human, except she has built herself into this brand. How did she take it, I think it was 2008, yeah. from a newsletter to a company that's worth $250 million? I mean, look what happened in 2008. 
the stock, the stock market crashed, the housing market crashed, and the world became very mistrustful of government and of regulations, and people needed new leaders, and everyone was wondering, why have I been misdiagnosed? Why um, do I not have a job anymore? And the same forces that allowed us, that allowed Donald Trump to become president on a campaign of, I'm not a Washington insider, I'm not a politician, gave rise to Gwyneth, who says, I'm not a doctor. Mm -hmm. You can trust me. Like, I, I am not a pharmaceutical company. I have no skin in this game. Her skin, yeah. man. And, skin. And, and such, such incredible. That skin is amazing. Yeah. But <laughs> as your company does grow, which I'm sure does sell a lot of skincare products, as we're talking about that radiant skin, what kind of hurdles, what is she bumping up against as it becomes bigger and bigger? You wrote about the partnership with Condé Nast, which fell apart. It, the partnership ran its course. They had a two magazine deal and the partnership ran its course. But the, op, the real obstacles are the people who don't like her. They want to expand, they're going to expand internationally very soon. Um, but, but more than that, it's the amount of very, very, very livid public opinion about what is sometimes things that she says and sometimes about her existence. Mm -hmm. yeah. how, does she, how does she justify kind of amplifying these uh, practices that might not be based in science? Um, what she will say is that, you know, science favors white men in its studies. Pharmaceuticals don't, pharmaceutical companies, which fund most of the studies, don't fund studies on apple cider vinegar, which might have <laughs> real healing properties. Although you would say then, like, someone selling apple cider vinegar might do that if it were true. Wait, do you think there's big apple cider vinegar? A lot of people over the course of this story spoke to me about the miracles of apple cider, ap apple cider vinegar. But do you think there's like an apple farmer somewhere pushing that agenda? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but then again, the reason we all drink milk and the reason we eat eggs every morning is, are because the, the Dairy Council and the Egg Council, like there are nefarious sources, forces everywhere. Mm. That's the crazy thing. There are nefarious forces everywhere and there are celebrity-run lifestyle brands mm -hmm. who understand something a little bit either better or worse than she does about relatability. And you see all of these people, I, I follow all of these lifestyle brands and they are, and there are women eating pasta, like it's falling all over their faces and they're like, there's zit cream, look how real I am. Those are public displays of relatability and she just doesn't do that. She doesn't do she it. She doesn't do that. She doesn't pretend she doesn't have her, the money she has. Uh -huh. She doesn't pretend that she has it that bad. She doesn't. She said at one point, "I can't pretend I'm someone who makes twenty-five thousand dollars a year." But also, what would we do to her mm -hmm. if she did pretend that? What if? What would we do to her if she went? If she did an Instagram video about like a life hack, uh -huh. how to how to get into the pool club, uh, like join in August and it's half the price, like. The, the world would explode you're from the almost, rage. You're almost arguing that if she did that, the internet could somehow figure out new levels. Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. I just want to ask one last question yeah. because you were talking about, and it's in the piece, this, aspir this yeah. aspirational, right? She never tries to be almost relatable. It's almost like she hovers above us, uh, although she did smoke a couple of cigarettes with you. One. She uh, smoked one. She smoked one. I smoked several. <laughs> <laughs> I smoked several. Why does it work for her? Because she just has a real discipline about her. And maybe that comes from 
living a life where you were kind of born into into the thing most of us want already, which is ease and a good family relationship. And, and she cultivated this sense of discipline in this way, and she became so isolated at such a young age that she didn't have to do the thing that, that women do with each other, which is say, oh no, I'm so bad, no, I'm so bad. She was friends with Madonna. Mm -hmm. She's like, no, I'm so good, no, I'm so good. <laughs> She's like, I'm so great. And all we really want, right? That's is... not reporting, that's just my fantasy, my, no. my like a uh, fan fiction about their friendship. But all we want to do is be great like that. Yeah. Uh, well, Taffy, again, the profile is absolutely incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for We're having me. We're tweeting her piece out right now. If you hadn't had a chance to read it yet, now is the time. And and up next, it's time for Throwback Thursday. Nobody truly enjoys getting old, but at least we're in good company. Kevin Fallon is a senior entertainment reporter at the Daily Beast and published this piece, It's Still Britney Bitch. Growing up and getting old with Britney Spears. Kevin joins me now. Hi, Kevin. How are Hi, you? I'm good. So we were just talking. Britney Spears is probably my first musical artist that I ever fangirled out mm -hmm. over. And we were just saying, I guess it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Baby One More Time came out in 1998. It's wild to like talk about her in terms of decades. Decades. It's, How are we that old? I don't know. It's so insane. <laughs> so do you personally have a favorite Britney era? I love the Oops, I Did It Again era because I feel like that A, solidified her sort of as a major pop star, that it wasn't like a fluke when she first came out, but it was also when she was still singing. Like if you watch her Aww. live performances like on <laughs> SNL and that kind of thing, she was still doing all that crazy dancing and actually singing. It was before she lip synced literally every single performance. So I really appreciated that. And plus the songs on that album were just so good. And that red leather catsuit might still be the sexiest music video look ever. Yeah, I thought the old lady dropped into the ocean at the end. Exactly. Well, baby, I went down and got it for you. The video is insane, and according to legend, was actually her idea, her concept. I have heard that as well. Yeah. So you recently saw Britney perform in Atlantic City for her Piece of Me tour. How was it? How different was it than her residency, which she just finished in Vegas? There were a few different songs, and obviously the the you know production that was behind her was scaled back a little bit. But it was pretty much in line with what you saw in Vegas, um, with the exception of she seems to be having slightly more fun. I, I saw the Piece of Me show in Vegas, um, I want to say three years ago, and she was very much just going through the motions. And when I saw her in Atlantic City, there seemed to be a little bit more of a spark to her, which was which was a welcome surprise because I think everyone's um, sort of sadness surrounding Britney Spears in, in recent years is just how she seems like a sort of like a drone robotically doing what she's being told to do. So right. to see a little bit of personality was fun. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think it is about Britney that no matter what she's gone through and she's kind of had ups and downs in her career, her fans have remained so loyal to her. Is well, it where they were just so young and I think we that's, that, latched on? Yeah, that, that's it. I think, you know, her songs have soundtracked because she, she came out when I was I want to say 11 or 12. Yeah, same. So all of the really formative experiences in my life, I can sort of pinpoint a Britney Spears album that was, you know, that was going on at that time. And and on top of that, we, we watched her go through something really dark and sort of emerge on the other end of it. I wouldn't say she's totally okay. <laughs> she doesn't yeah. have control of her finances and she doesn't. she's not entirely autonomous, but she, she looks great. She's a functioning human being and she's sort of rebounded from what was a really 
bad episode in her life. So we, on top of having her be a connection in our life, I feel like we, we've seen her uh, sort of come out the other end as a survivor too. So there's that sort of symbiotic emotional connection to her. I totally agree. I mean, she, I feel like, was the first musical artist I ever really loved. Like I said, I mean, not a girl, not yet a woman. <laughs> felt that, felt that. <laughs> so today is Throwback Thursday. We're talking about Britney. Speaking of throwbacks, uh, you know, she was originally on the Mickey Mouse Club. We all know with the Ryan Gosling, J.C. Chazé, Justin Timberlake. Do you think that there ever could be a reunion? Like, what would that look like? I would love for there to be a reunion. I think the logistics of organizing those schedules would be possibly the, the uh, uh, scheduler's worst nightmare. I think um, JC is probably free. I think he might be free. <laughs> um, but getting like Ryan Gosling off of a set in Croatia when Britney Spears is touring the world and Justin Timberlake is you know making country music in Nashville now or whatever um, would be would be quite difficult. But that'd be really fun to see. Yeah, I think it would break the internet. I think yeah. people would just lose their minds. Yeah. And I th but I also think getting Britney Spears to do anything these days is pretty difficult. I I've, I've heard that um, Andy Cohen has been trying to book her on Watch What Happens Live for years. Wow, and she's really? She's like the sort of the, the one that gets away each time. Huh. Well, whether you're a fan or not, everyone recognizes an iconic Britney song. So since you're a true fan, we were going to play a little game with you. We're going to play some of her songs backwards. Oh this gosh. is for fun, but it's also for legal reasons because we're not allowed to play her songs. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so we want to see if you can still guess the song and I'll play along too um, uh, within the first, I guess, like five seconds. I'm going into this with no confidence, just so everyone knows. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. okay. Here's the first one. Is it lucky? Yes, good job. That's the, to, to be fair, that is my favorite Britney Spears song. I love Lucky. I once took a Britney Spears spin class, and the spin instructor played Lucky, and the people didn't scream loud enough, so he turned off the music and said, "It's Lucky, you bitches!" <laughs> and it made us scream louder before you would continue the class. That's amazing. Yeah. I wish I was there. Okay, next one. Ready? Oh, that's circus. Yeah, that was easy. That was okay, ready? Yeah. Number three. Yeah, these are so easy, even backwards. Okay. Oh, I know this one. Maybe one more time. Uh, yes. yes. I thought it. I thought it was a different one, so I was wrong. But okay, you ready? Yeah. I know this one. Oops. I mean, oops. I did it again. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Good job! You did it! I, I was very doubtful of my skills in this game, but... I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised. I didn't listen to them before we went on air either, and it was actually really easy to tell even backwards. I don't know if that makes us just like true fans or really good or, at hearing yeah. music backwards. Or they're just, they're, those songs are so iconic that even backwards are familiar. Exactly, exactly. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us and Thanks playing along with me. us. Uh, we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on a Mickey Mouse Club reunion? Let us know using your favorite Britney St Spears gif or your favorite JC gif, who knows? Up next, are we entering a cashless society? Stay tuned.
According to our next guest, a cashless society is a con, and big finance is behind it. Uh, here to discuss his piece is Brett Scott, an opinion writer for The Guardian and author of The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. Good morning. What's up, guys? How are you doing? I'm doing well. So I'm so excited you were able to join us this morning because um, this whole segment started with a tweet I saw uh, from a friend of the show, Tanzina Vega at WNYC, and I, I wanted to uh, get some answers to it. I was really curious. This is what she tweeted. So everything is now cashless, huh? Nice way for banks and who knows who to track how I spend my money, I suppose. So I saw that uh, and I, I started wondering about like the other implications, like what does this mean for people? You you know, who don't have credit cards, uh, the unbanked. And so to start, why are more businesses, a lot of lunch places in the Flatiron neighborhood in New York City, for example, going cashless? Uh, where's this coming from? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually, because as you say, if you hang around in New York and you go to all these kind of like, I'd say like more like hipster kind of places, they're all starting to go cashless. Um, and some places, on the other hand, will actually refuse cards. So they have this kind of like discrepancy between these businesses, some of whom think it's like a really good thing and some of whom think it's um, a bad thing because they pay fees. Um, what we do know is that uh, payments companies like Visa have been actively actually bribing those um, various small shops to actually go cashless. You can actually, um, Visa's run all these campaigns trying to like, um, run sort of uh, give people prizes for having the best like uh, cashless video. Um, but certainly like what's going on, if you like look at the overall structure, the financial sector wants people to go to cashless and then they try to use the, the various sort of um, frontline kind of stores to sort of promote that idea too. So in the US, like Shake Shack, for example, has just agreed to go cashless. Um, so of course, everybody uses Shake Shack now. It's not going to get that idea in their head. That's what they're supposed to do. That it's normal, that it's normal. So um, we're gonna talk about like consequences in, in a moment, but um, from the perspective of, of these banks and these finance companies, how are, how are they selling the benefits of going cashless to consumers? Because I, I think we understand what, what these other companies are getting sure, at. Sure, sure, Well, I mean, if you're any kind of like entrepreneur or business, like what, you're, what you basically gotta do is you gotta sell, sell the short-term benefits to an individual um, rather than focusing on the long-term impact to a collective group of people, right? So you focus on these short-term things, and the best thing to do is to focus on convenience and speed, right? Because that's the easiest thing to sell. Um, so in general, what the banks and stuff will say and the various payments companies is that this is fast, it's convenient, it's, you know, you don't have to carry this cash around. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of people in the sort of short term think that that's fine, you know, they don't mind that. Um, the real question is then, like, what are these sort of the long-term implications if everybody starts to use the system? Um, and that's something that the companies will never showcase or they'll never tell you about what those long-term implications are. Um, and I can go into those if you would like. Well, I mean, I, I want to ask, you know, are consumers to blame uh, for going cashless? Like the, our need for convenience? Do we kind of have to accept some of the responsibility for this? Yeah, look, I mean, Part of the reason that I write these articles where I'm looking at the impact of the banks is that, you know, the, the standard story that you find everywhere in the sort of the innovation media or whatever it is, you know, like the World Economic Forum, all the kind of like mainstream story is that cashless society is pushed by the everyday person. It's basically just consumers who want this to happen. Mm -hmm. All right. And, you know, maybe there's an element of it that's true. But what's always glossed over is that the 
the most concentrated interests, the people who have the, the biggest interest in promoting it are extremely large financial institutions and often states and governments. Um, and when you start to look under the surface, you'll actually see that they've been waging almost like a cold war on cash for the last 20 years, and they're slowly starting to get more and more traction with it. Wow. Um, you know, Visa will overtly state this. If Visa in the UK, you know, it overtly says it plans to try to make people uh, feel cash as peculiar by 2020. I mean, that's its actual objective. Wow. That's really interesting. Well, you know, to look at another angle, I've been thinking about, you know, combining like this push for cashless, uh, you know, convenience um, with gentrification, you know, as as uh, new neighborhoods are gentrified. Um, what does this, you know, and maybe it's obvious, but what does this mean for, you know, the people who've been living in these neighborhoods forever um, and often, you know, have to deal with, you know, being unbanked um, and struggling with, you know, the predatory dynamics of, of banking? How do they kind of figure into this? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I've got quite a, I remember being in New York a few months ago, and actually I was standing, I forget where, where it was exactly, but on, on one side of the road was a small little kind of um, Asian mom and pop kind of shop. And they were asking people, they were saying, you know, please, can we, would you rather pay with cash? And on the other side was like a yuppie sort of like latte and, you know, wheatgrass smoothie place with people on their MacBooks, and they refused to accept cash. And it kind of like reflects a sort of, um, the kind of cultural or sort of, elements of this like basically if you're like a, kind of like an aspirational sort of um urban elite you really love this idea of sort of modern fast payments but for many people who are not in that world who often feel marginalized or who don't think large institutions represent them actually cash has often been their sort of um the thing that allows them to interact economically and also actually like sometimes they just like prefer it you know if you th think about like the like if you go to like the Midwest of the, you know, somewhere and you, and you walk into some kind of like, you, you know, biker bar, um, like, like what's the most sort of natural way for some like biker guy to pay for things, right? Like, I mean, for me, there's, there's something about like the experience of paying with cash that actually appeals to more sort of like people who are more on the edges of society. Hmm. Um, whereas the people who love cashlessness the most tend to be your kind of urban professionals, the kind of people who, you know, think that there's like technological progress is going to save everything. Right. Yeah. Well, this is uh, so interesting and I'm glad you're able to join us. It sounds like, again, as you're saying, like this is the very beginning um, of, of a story that has huge implications. So we'll probably keep talking about it. Thank you so much for joining us, Brett. All right. All right, friends, we want to hear from you. Uh, what do you use when making everyday purchases? Have you started getting into using, you know, cashless options, Venmo a lot? Uh, let us know using the hashtag am to dm And up next, Isaac and I are going to read your tweets. AM to brunch. AM to brunch. <laughs> Welcome back, Cini Martinez. You tweeted, I need my cash to buy essentials. Incense, the black and gold kind, That's African true. oils, good fruit, and a popsicle on a hot day. That's real. Yeah, if you're in New York City, you're going to go to that fruit stand mm -hmm, that has mm -hmm, all the good fruit. Mm -hmm. You're going to have cash. I, I, yeah. like, I just like the idea of essentials. Mm -hmm. yeah. Those are the essentials. I like the it. incense. Mm -hmm. Shea butter in Harlem. Yeah, I get it. A delicious, delicious popsicle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't you show up talking about, you got, you got, you got, you got, <laughs> I also, 
also saw some people making good points on the timeline kind of about how like the other thing that this is very problematic for is people who are homeless, you right. know, people who don't have bank accounts. I yeah, think. I mean, it, it, it raises so many questions mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's I'm fascinated and I, I'm, as y'all know, like I'm really interested in talking about personal finance. So I think we're going to talk about it more um, and just all of the different facets, but it's, it's all so new and happening very quickly and I think is quickly, as he mentions, taken for granted, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. like, oh, it's now just Shake Shack and, you know, three years from now, we always say, oh, I just, you just, everything's cashless, right? And then eventually it's in your hand and then they got chips I'm not in getting your brain that not and then that. things get, <laughs> whoa, I had already moved on and you would escalate it to, okay, all right, well. After hearing from Congressman Joe Kennedy, Kirsten Baptiste had this to say, to be honest, future candidates need to be going hard about student loans because that is bringing people way down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, if you want to relate to a huge part of the U.S. electorate, talking about student loans is As, not a... Especially the young electorate. Yeah. And I think yeah. he did. I think he was making a good... I know I, I got on him for being too kumbaya, but he might have a point there that this is something that could unite people on both sides of the aisles, mm-hmm. especially as representatives become younger. Mm. Nichelle Stevens says, Joanne the scammer, Anna Delve, Anna March, I ain't trusting anyone with Anne in their name. Yeah, what's that about? Ooh, that that's is a good, pretty intro. Well, you know, Anna March is not a real name. Right, that's, that's true. a chosen name. Joanne the scammer is not a real name. Right. Was, Anna, was that her real name? I, I would have to check with I them. I don't think that was actually her real name. So you think it's all different? So I think there's yeah, something about the name. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. I think it's something uh, about the name Anna. You know what? You want to hear my theory? Can I theorize yeah, yeah, about yeah. this? Go, go, go. Will we get to it? Um, I think it's because it's, it's an unassuming name. Mm. It's, not, it's not intimidating. Mm. Right? It's like, oh, nice. And, uh, you know, like all of those. You know, except for Joanne. Let's just say I'm that. just trying to think about <laughs> Joanne the scammer. Okay, I'm, like, I'm like Anna Wintour. All right. Anna, okay. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. That's true. <laughs> uh, we asked you if you would opt in to share your DNA for research. Sarah. Bella V says this, I opted in to share my genetic info because it could potentially help a lot of people. I wish it wasn't helping Big Pharma, but unfortunately that's the country I live in. That lines up kind of with you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's something to be said for trying to help move medicine forward, uh, but that is the society we live in, that there are big corporations that take a lot of profit from that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of like cashless, these transitions that happen very quickly, and I, I think it's not that I'm scared of it, but there's so much we don't know. There's a part right. of me that's like, come on, just give me a cut. Yeah. Use my DNA, but give me a little bit of them profits, baby. What happens if you change your mind down the line? That's, I mean, that's a very good question, yeah. too. Wisdom statement would opt in, utter, under, in under these conditions only if I had full control over how my DNA was used. And furthermore, any discoveries from it would partially belong to me. He wants, he wants, to, I'm over here asking for pennies. He's like, give me the intellectual property rights too. That's really interesting. And frankly, to be real, real, I wonder how, how, if we ask like a big survey, like mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of people, how race would impact this. Because yeah, the history of, of science and race in America, Tuskegee experience, I know so, someone mentioned that. Mm-hmm. The, your tweet has me thinking of uh, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. Yep, 100%. You know, like how would that impact your, your willingness to trust stuff? This is just fascinating. I'm mm-hmm. in it. I'm in the story. I'm in it. 2018, baby. Woo! Okay, thank you to all of our guests this morning. Congressman Joe Kennedy, Brian Feldman, Carolyn Kellogg, Dan Vergano, Emily Tamkin, Stephanie McNeil, Taffy, Brodessa Ackner, Kevin Fallon, and Brett Scott for joining us. Thank you. It was a fantastic show. We went a little long, but listen, we'll be back here tomorrow, 10 a.m. right on time. Yeah, it's going to be in a minute. We'll see you then. Come back around. Go have fun. Almost Friday, guys. You're getting there. Oh, yeah. You're getting there. You're getting there. You're getting there, baby. Tired, man. (laughs) 